0: section 46 of the fable of the bees by bernard mandeville this librivox recording is in the public domain horatio the method of education you recommend in pinning men down to an opinion may be very good to make bigots and raise a strong party to the priests but to have good subjects and moral men nothing is better than to inspire youth with a love of virtue and strongly to imbue them with sentiments of justice and probity and the true notions of honor and politeness. These are the true specifics to cure a man's nature, and destroy in him the savage principles of sovereignty and selfishness, that infest and are so mischievous to it, as to religious matters, prepossessing the mind and forcing youth into a belief is more partial and unfair than it is to leave them unbiased and unprejudiced till they come to maturity, and are fit to judge as well as choose for themselves. Cleomenes, It is this fair and impartial judgment you speak in praise of that will ever promote and increase unbelief, and nothing has contributed more to the growth of deism in this kingdom than the remissness of education in sacred matters, which for some time has been in fashion among the better sort. Horatio, the public welfare ought to be our principal care, and I am well assured that it is not bigotry to a sect or persuasion, but common honesty.' uprightness in all dealings and benevolence to one another which the society stands most in need of cleomenes i do not speak up for bigotry and where the christian religion is thoroughly taught as it should be it is impossible that honesty uprightness or benevolence should ever be forgot and no appearances of those virtues are to be trusted to unless they proceed from that motive for without the belief of another world A man is under no obligation for his sincerity in this. His very oath is no tie upon him. Horatio. What is it upon an hypocrite that dares to be perjured? Cleomenes. No man's oath is ever taken if it is known that once he has been forsworn. Nor can I ever be deceived by an hypocrite when he tells me that he is one, and I shall never believe a man to be an atheist unless he owns it himself. Horatio. I do not believe there are real atheists in the world. Cleomenes, I will not quarrel about words, but our modern deism is no greater security than atheism, for a man's acknowledging the being of a god, even an intelligent first cause, is of no use, either to himself or others, if he denies a providence and a future state. Horatio, after all, I do not think that virtue has any more relation to credulity than it has to want of faith. Cleomenes, yet it would and ought to have, if we were consistent with ourselves, and if men were swayed in their actions by the principles they side with, and the opinion they profess themselves to be of, all atheists would be devils, and superstitious men saints. But this is not true. There are atheists of good morals, and great villains superstitious. Nay, I do not believe there is any wickedness that the worst atheist can commit, but superstitious men may be guilty of it, impiety not excepted for nothing is more common amongst rakes and gamesters than to hear men blaspheme, that believe in spirits, and are afraid of the devil. I have no greater opinion of superstition than I have of atheism. What I aimed at was to prevent and guard against both, and I am persuaded that there is no other antidote to be obtained by human means, so powerful and infallible against the poison of either, as what I have mentioned. As to the truth of our descent from Adam, I would not be a believer, and cease to be a rational creature. What I have to say for it is this. We are convinced that human understanding is limited, is the very thing, the sole cause, which palpably hinders us from diving into our origin by dint of penetration. The consequence is, that to come at the truth of this origin, which is of very great concern to us, something is to be believed. But what or whom to believe is the question. If I cannot demonstrate to you that Moses was divinely inspired, you will be forced to confess that there never was anything more extraordinary in the world than that, in a most superstitious age, one man brought up among the grossest idolaters, that had the vilest and most abominable notions of the Godhead, should, without help, as we know of, find out the most hidden and most important truths by his natural capacity only. For, besides the deep insight he had in human nature, as appears from the Decalogue, it is manifest that he was acquainted with the creation out of nothing the unity and immense greatness of that invisible power that has made the universe and that he taught this to the israelites fifteen centuries before any other nation upon earth was so far enlightened it is undeniable moreover that the history of moses concerning the beginning of the world and mankind is the most ancient and least improbable of any that are extant that others who have wrote after him on the same subject appear most of them to be imperfect copiers of him, and that the relations which seem not to have been borrowed from Moses, as the accounts we have of Somonacodam, Confucius, and others, are less rational, and fifty times more extravagant and incredible, than anything contained in the Pentateuch. As to the things revealed, the plan itself, abstract from faith and religion, when we have weighed every system that has been advanced, we shall find, that, since we must have had a beginning. Nothing is more rational or more agreeable to good sense than to derive our origin from an incomprehensible creative power that was the first mover and author of all things. Horatio, I never heard anybody entertain higher notions or more noble sentiments of the deity than at different times I have heard from you. Pray, when you read Moses, do you not meet up with several things in the economy of paradise, and the conversation between God and Adam— that seem to be low, unworthy, and altogether inconsistent with the sublime ideas you are used to form of the Supreme Being? Cleomenes, I freely own, not only that I have thought so, but likewise that I have long stumbled at it, but when I consider, on the one hand, that the more human knowledge increases, the more consummate and unerring the divine wisdom appears to be, in everything we can have any insight into, and, on the other, that the things hitherto detected, either by chance or industry, are very inconsiderable both in number and value, if compared to the vast multitude of weightier matters that are left behind and remain still undiscovered. When I say I consider these things, I cannot help thinking that there may be very wise reasons for what we find fault with, that are, and perhaps ever will be, unknown to men as long as the world endures. Horatio. But why should he remain laboring under difficulties we can easily solve, and not say with Dr. Bernet and several others that those things are allegories and to be understood in a figurative sense? Cleomenes, I have nothing against it, and shall always applaud the ingenuity and good offices of men who endeavor to reconcile religious mysteries to human reason and probability. But I insist upon it that nobody can disprove anything that is said in the Pentateuch in the most literal sense— and I defy the wit of man to frame or contrive a story, the best concerted fable they can invent, how man came into the world, which I shall not find as much fault with, and be able to make as strong objections to, as the enemies of religion have found with, and raised against the account of Moses. If I may be allowed to take the same liberty with their known forgery, which they take with the Bible, before they have brought one argument against the veracity of it. Horatio, it may be so, But as first I was the occasion of this long digression, by mentioning the Golden Age, so now I desire we may return to our subject. What time, how many ages do you think it would require to have a well-civilized nation from such a savage pair as yours? Cleomenes, that is very uncertain, and I believe it impossible to determine anything about it. From what has been said, it is manifest that the family descending from such a stock would be crumbled to pieces, reunited and dispersed again several times, before the whole of any part of it could be advanced to any degree of politeness. The best forms of government are subject to revolutions, and a great many things must concur to keep a society of men together till they become a civilized nation. Horatio. Is not a vast deal owing in the raising of a nation to the difference there is in the spirit and genius of people? Cleomenes nothing but what depends upon climates, which is soon overbalanced by skillful government. Courage and cowardice in all bodies of men depend entirely upon exercise and discipline. Arts and sciences seldom come before riches, and both flow in faster or slower, according to the capacity of the governors, the situation of the people, and the opportunities they have of improvements. But the first is the chief, to preserve peace and tranquility among multitudes of different views and to make them all labor for one interest is a great task, and nothing in human affairs requires greater knowledge than the art of governing. Horatio, according to your system, it should be little more than guarding against human nature. Cleomenes, but it is a great while before that nature can be rightly understood, and it is the work of ages to find out the true use of the passions, and to raise a politician that can make every frailty of the members add strength to the whole body, and by dexterous management turn private vices into public benefits. Horatio. It must be a great advantage to an age when many extraordinary persons are born in it. Cleomenes. It is not genius so much as experience that helps men to good laws. Solon, Lycurgus, Socrates, and Plato all travelled for their knowledge which they communicated to others. The wisest laws of human invention are generally owing to the evasions of bad men, whose cunning had eluded the force of former ordinances that had been made with less caution. Horatio. I fancy that the invention of iron and working the ore into a metal must contribute very much to the completing of society, because men can have no tools or agriculture without it. Cleomenes. Iron is certainly very useful, but shells and flints, and hardening of wood by fire, are substitutes that men make a shift with, if they can but have peace, live in quiet, and enjoy the fruits of their labor. Could you ever have believed that a man without hands could have shaved himself, wrote good characters, and made use of a needle and thread with his feet? Yet this we have seen. It is said by some men of reputation that the Americans in Mexico and Peru have all the signs of an infant world, because when the Europeans first came among them, they wanted a great many things that seemed to be of easy invention. But considering that they had nobody to borrow from, and no iron at all, it is amazing which way they could arrive at the perfection we found them in. First, it is impossible to know how long multitudes may have been troublesome to one another before the invention of letters came among them, and they had any written laws. Secondly, from the many chasms in history, we know by experience that the accounts of transactions and times in which letters are known may be entirely lost, Wars and human discord may destroy the most civilized nations only by dispersing them, and general devastations spare arts and sciences no more than they do cities and palaces. That all men are born with a strong desire and no capacity at all to govern has occasioned an infinity of good and evil. Invasions and persecutions, by mixing and scattering our species, have made strange alterations in the world. Sometimes large empires are divided into several parts, and produce new kingdoms and principalities. At others, great conquerors in few years bring different nations under one dominion. From the decay of the Roman Empire alone we may learn that arts and sciences are more perishable, much sooner lost, than buildings or inscriptions, and that a deluge of ignorance may overspread countries without their ceasing to be inhabited. Horatio But what is it at last that raises opulent cities and powerful nations from the smallest beginnings? Cleomenes, Providence, Horatio, but Providence makes use of means that are visible. I want to know the engines it is performed with. Cleomenes, all the groundwork that is required to aggrandize nations you have seen in the Fable of the Bees. All sound politics, and the whole art of governing, are entirely built upon the knowledge of human nature, The great business in general of a politician is to promote and, if he can, reward all good and useful actions on the one hand, and on the other to punish or at least discourage everything that is destructive or hurtful to society. To name particulars would be an endless task. Anger, lust, and pride may be the causes of innumerable mischiefs that are all carefully to be guarded against, but setting them aside, the regulations only that are required to defeat and prevent all the machinations and contrivances that avarice and envy may put man upon to the detriment of his neighbour are almost infinite would you be convinced of these truths do but employ yourself for a month or two in surveying and minutely examining into every art and science every trade handicraft and occupation that are professed and followed in such a city as london and all the laws prohibitions ordinances and restrictions that have been found absolutely necessary to hinder both private men and bodies corporate, in so many different stations, first from interfering with the public peace and welfare, secondly from openly wronging and secretly overreaching, or any other way injuring one another. If you will give yourself this trouble, you will find the number of clauses and provisos, to govern a large flourishing city well, to be prodigious beyond imagination. Yet every one of them tending to the same purpose— the curbing, restraining, and disappointing the inordinate passions and hurtful frailties of man, you will find, moreover, which is still more to be admired, the greater part of the articles in this vast multitude of regulations, when well understood, to be the result of consummate wisdom. Horatio. How could these things exist if there had not been men of very bright parts and uncommon talents? Cleomenes. Among the things I hint at... There are very few that are the work of one man or of one generation. The greatest part of them are the product, the joint labor of several ages. Remember what in our third conversation I told you concerning the arts of shipbuilding and politeness. The wisdom I speak of is not the offspring of a fine understanding or intense thinking, but of sound and deliberate judgment acquired from a long experience in business and a multiplicity of observations. By this sort of wisdom and length of time it may be brought about that there shall be no greater difficulty in governing a large city than, pardon the lowness of the simile, there is in weaving of stockings. Horatio, very low indeed. Cleomenes, yet I know nothing to which the laws and established economy of a well-ordered city may be more justly compared than the knitting frame. The machine, at first view, is intricate and unintelligible, yet the effects of it are exact and beautiful, and in what is produced by it there is a surprising regularity. But the beauty and exactness in the manufacture are principally, if not altogether, owing to the happiness of the invention, the contrivance of the engine, for the greatest artist at it can furnish us with no better work than may be made by almost any scoundrel after half a year's practice. Horatio, though your comparison be low, I must own that it very well illustrates your meaning." cleomenes whilst you spoke i have thought of another which is better it is common now to have clocks that are made to play several tunes with great exactness the study and labor as well as trouble of disappointments which in doing and undoing such a contrivance must necessarily have cost from the beginning to the end are not to be thought of without astonishment there is something analogous to this in the government of a flourishing city that has lasted uninterrupted for several ages There is no part of the wholesome regulations belonging to it, even the most trifling and minute, about which great pains and consideration have not been employed, as well as length of time, and if you will look into the history and antiquity of any such city, you will find that the changes, repeals, additions, and amendments that have been made in and to the laws and ordinances by which it is ruled, are in number prodigious but that when once they are brought to as much perfection as art and human wisdom can carry them, the whole machine may be made to play of itself, with as little skill as is required to wind up a clock, and the government of a large city once put into good order, the magistrates only following their noses, will continue to go right for a while, though there was not a wise man in it, provided that the care of providence was to watch over it in the same manner as it did before. Horatio but supposing the government of a large city when it is once established to be very easy it is not so with whole states and kingdoms is it not a great blessing to a nation to have all places of honor and great trust filled with men of parts and application of probity and virtue cleomenes yes and of learning moderation frugality candor and affability look out for such as fast as you can but in the meantime the places cannot stand open The offices must be served by such as you can get. Horatio, you seem to insinuate that there is a great scarcity of good men in the nation. Cleomenes, I do not speak of our nation in particular, but of all states and kingdoms in general. What I would say is, that it is the interest of every nation to have their home government and every branch of the civil administration so wisely contrived, that every man of middling capacity and reputation may be fit for any of the highest posts. Horatio, that is absolutely impossible, at least in such a nation as ours, for what would you do for judges and chancellors? Cleomenes, the study of the law is very crabbed and very tedious, but the profession of it is as gainful, and has great honors annexed to it. The consequence of this is, that few come to be eminent in it but men of tolerable parts and great application. And whoever is a good lawyer, and not noted for dishonesty, is always fit to be a judge, as soon as he is old and grave enough. To be a Lord Chancellor, indeed, requires higher talents, and he ought not only to be a good lawyer and an honest man, but likewise a person of general knowledge and great penetration. But this is but one man, and considering what I have said of the law, and the power which ambition and the love of gain have upon mankind, it is morally impossible that, in the common course of things among the practitioners and chancery, there should not at all times be one or the other fit for the seals. Horatio, must not every nation have men that are fit for public negotiations, and persons of great capacity to serve for envoys, ambassadors, and plenipotentiaries? Must they not have others at home that are likewise able to treat with foreign ministers? Cleomenes, that every nation must have such people is certain, But I wonder that the company you have kept both at home and abroad have not convinced you that the things you speak of require no such extraordinary qualifications. Among the people of quality that are bred up in courts of princes, all middling capacities must be persons of address, and a becoming boldness, which are the most useful talents in all conferences and negotiations. Horatio in a nation so involved in debts of different kinds, and loaded with such a variety of taxes as ours is, to be thoroughly acquainted with all the funds and the appropriations of them must be a science not to be attained to without good natural parts and great application, and therefore the chief management of the treasury must be a post of the highest trust, as well as endless difficulty. Cleomenes, I do not think so, Most branches of the public administration are in reality less difficult to those that are in them than they seem to be to those that are out of them, and strangers to them. If a jack and the weights of it were out of sight, a sensible man unacquainted with the matter would be very much puzzled if he was to account for the regular turning of two or three spits well loaded, for hours together, and it is ten to one, but he would have a greater opinion of the cook or the scullion than either of them deserved." In all businesses that belong to the exchequer, the constitution does nine parts in ten, and has taken effectual care that the happy person whom the king shall be pleased to favor with the superintendency of it should never be greatly tired or perplexed with his office, and likewise that the trust, the confidence that must be reposed in him, should be very near as moderate as his trouble. By dividing the employments in a great office, and subdividing them into many parts, every man's business may be made so plain and certain that, when he is a little used to it, it is hardly possible for him to make mistakes, and again, by careful limitations of every man's power and judicious checks upon everybody's trust, every officer's fidelity may be placed in so clear a light that the moment he forfeits it he must be detected. It is by these arts that the weightiest affairs, and a vast multiplicity of them, may be managed with safety as well as dispatch, by ordinary men, whose highest good is wealth and pleasure, and that the utmost regularity may be observed in a great office, and every part of it, at the same time, that the whole economy of it seems to be intricate and perplexed to the last degree, not only to strangers, but the greatest part of the very officers that are employed in it. Horatio The economy of our exchequer I own is an admirable contrivance to prevent frauds and encroachments of all kinds, but in the office, which is at the head of it and gives motion to it, there is greater latitude. Cleomenes. Why so? A lord treasurer, or if his office be executed by commissioners, the chancellor of the exchequer, are no more lawless and have no greater power with impunity to embezzle money than the meanest clerk that is employed under them. Horatio. Is not the king's warrant their discharge? Cleomenes, yes, for sums which the king has a right to dispose of, or the payment of money for uses directed by Parliament, not otherwise. And if the king, who can do no wrong, should be imposed upon, and his warrant be obtained for money at random, whether it is appropriated or not, contrary to, or without a direct order of the legislature, the treasurer obeys at his peril. Horatio, but there are other posts, or at least there is one still of higher moment, and that requires a much greater and more general capacity than any yet named. Cleomenes, pardon me, as the Lord Chancellor's is the highest office in dignity, so the execution of it actually demands greater and more uncommon abilities than any other whatever. Horatio, what say you to the prime minister who governs all, and acts immediately under the king? Cleomenes, There is no such officer belonging to our constitution, for by this the whole administration is, for very wise reasons, divided into several branches. Horatio. But who must give orders and instructions to admirals, generals, governors, and all our ministers in foreign courts? Who is to take care of the king's interests throughout the kingdom, and of his safety? Cleomenes. The king and his council, without which royal authority is not supposed to act, superintend, and govern all. And whatever the monarch has not a mind immediately to take care of himself, falls in course to that part of the administration it belongs to, in which everybody has plain laws to walk by. As to the king's interest, it is the same with that of the nation. His guards are to take care of his person, and there is no business of what nature soever that can happen in or to the nation, which is not within the province and under the inspection of some one or other of the great officers of the crown." that are all known, dignified, and distinguished by their respective titles, and amongst them I can assure you there is no such name as Prime Minister. Horatio, but why will you prevaricate with me after this manner? You know yourself, and all the world knows and sees, that there is such a minister, and it is easily proved that there always have been such ministers, and in the situation we are, I do not believe a king could do without, when there are a great many disaffected people in the kingdom and parliament men are to be chosen, elections must be looked after with great care and a thousand things are to be done that are necessary to disappoint the sinister ends of malcontents and keep out the pretender, things of which the management often requires great penetration and uncommon talents as well as secrecy and dispatch. Cleomenes, how sincerely soever you may seem to speak in defense of these things, Horatio! i am sure from your principles that you are not in earnest i am not to judge of the exigency of our affairs but as i would not pry into the conduct or scan the actions of princes and their ministers so i pretend to justify or defend no wisdom but that of the constitution itself horatio i do not desire you should only tell me whether you do not think that a man who has and can carry this vast burden upon his shoulders And all Europe's business in his breast must be a person of a prodigious genius as well as general knowledge and other great abilities. Cleomenes, that a man invested with so much real power and authority so extensive as such ministers generally have must make a great figure and be considerable above all other subjects is most certain, but it is my opinion that there are always fifty men in the kingdom that, if employed, would be fit for this post, and after a little practice, shine in it to one who is equally qualified to be a lord high chancellor of great britain a prime minister has a vast and unspeakable advantage barely by being so and by everybody's knowing him to be and treating him as such a man who in every office and every branch of it throughout the administration has the power as well as the liberty to ask and see whom and what he pleases has more knowledge within his reach and can speak of everything with greater exactness than any other man that is much better versed in affairs, and has ten times greater capacity. It is hardly possible that an active man, of tolerable education, that is not destitute of a spirit nor of vanity, should fail of appearing to be wise, vigilant, and expert, who has the opportunity whenever he thinks fit to make use of all the cunning and experience, as well as diligence and labor of every officer in the civil administration, and if he has but money enough, and will employ men to keep up a strict correspondence in every part of the kingdom, he can remain ignorant of nothing, and there is hardly any affair or transaction, civil or military, foreign or domestic, which he will not be able greatly to influence, when he has a mind either to promote or obstruct it. Horatio, there seems to be a great deal in what you say, I must confess, but I begin to suspect that what often inclines me to be of your opinion is your dexterity in placing things in the light you would have them seen in, and the great skill you have in depreciating what is valuable and detracting from merit. Cleomenes, I protest that I speak from my heart. Horatio, when I reflect on what I have beheld with my own eyes, and what I still see every day of the transactions between statesmen and politicians, I am very well assured you are in the wrong." when I consider all the stratagems and the force as well as finesse that are made use of to supplant and undo Prime Ministers, the wit and cunning, industry and address, that are employed to misrepresent all their actions, the calumnies and false reports that are spread of them, the ballads and lampoons that are published, the set speeches and studied invectives that are made against them, when I consider, I say, and reflect on these things, and everything else that is said and done either to ridicule or to render them odious. I am convinced that to defeat so much art and strength, and disappoint so much malice and envy as prime ministers are generally attacked with, require extraordinary talents. No man of only common prudence and fortitude could maintain himself in that post for a twelve-month, much less for many years together, though he understood the world very well, and had all the virtue, faithfulness, and integrity in it, Therefore, there must be some fallacy in your assertion. Cleomenes. Either I have been deficient in explaining myself, or else I have had the misfortune to be misunderstood. When I insinuated that men might be prime ministers without extraordinary endowments, I spoke only in regard to the business itself, that province which, if there was no such minister, the king and council would have the trouble of managing. Horatio. To direct and manage the whole machine of government— he must be a consummate statesman in the first place. Cleomenes, you have too sublime a notion of that post. To be a consummate statesman is the highest qualification human nature is capable of possessing. To deserve that name, a man must be well versed in ancient and modern history, and thoroughly acquainted with all the courts of Europe, that he may know not only the public interest in every nation, but likewise the private views as well as inclinations virtues and vices of princes and ministers of every country in christendom and the borders of it he ought to know the product and geography the principal cities and fortresses and of these their trade and manufactures their situation natural advantages strength and number of inhabitants he must have read men as well as books and perfectly well understood human nature and the use of the passions he must moreover be a great master in concealing the sentiments of his heart, have an entire command over his features, and be well skilled in all the wiles and stratagems to draw out secrets from others. A man, of whom all this, or the greatest part of it, may not be said with truth, and that he has had great experience in public affairs, cannot be called a consummate statesman, but he may be fit to be a prime minister, though he had not a hundredth part of those qualifications, as the king's favour creates prime ministers, and makes their station the post of greatest power as well as profit, so the same favour is the only bottom which those that are in it have to stand upon. The consequence is, that the most ambitious men in all monarchies are ever contending for this post as the highest prize, of which the enjoyment is easy, and all the difficulty in obtaining and preserving it. We see accordingly that the accomplishments I spoke of to make a statesman are neglected, and others aimed at and studied, that are more useful and more easily acquired. The capacities you observe in Prime Ministers are of another nature, and consist in being finished courtiers, and thoroughly understanding the art of pleasing and cajoling with address. To procure a prince what he wants, when it is known, and to be diligent in entertaining him with the pleasures he calls for, are ordinary services. Asking is no better than complaining. Therefore, being forced to ask is to have cause of complaint, and to see a prince submit to the slavery of it argues great rusticity in his courtiers. A polite minister penetrates into his master's wishes, and furnishes him with what he delights in, without giving him the trouble to name it. Every common flatterer can praise and extol promiscuously everything that is said or done, and find wisdom and prudence in the most indifferent actions, But it belongs to the skilful courtier to set fine glosses upon manifest imperfections, and make every failing, every frailty of his prince have the real appearance of the virtues that are the nearest, or, to speak more justly, the least opposite to them. By the observance of these necessary duties it is that the favour of princes may be long preserved as well as obtained. Whoever can make himself agreeable at a court will seldom fail of being thought necessary, And when a favorite has once established himself in the good opinion of his master, it is easy for him to make his own family engross the king's ear, and keep everybody from him but his own creatures. Nor is it more difficult in length of time to turn out of the administration everybody that was not of his own bringing in, and constantly be tripping up the heels of those who would attempt to raise themselves by any other interest or assistance." a prime minister has by his place great advantages over all that oppose him one of them is that nobody without exception ever filled that post but who had many enemies whether he was a plunderer or a patriot which being well known many things that are laid to a prime minister's charge are not credited among the impartial and more discreet part of mankind even when they are true as to the defeating and disappointing all the envy and malice they are generally attacked with If the favorite was to do all that himself, it would certainly, as you say, require extraordinary talents and a great capacity, as well as continual vigilance and application, but this is the province of their creatures. A task divided into a great number of parts, and everybody that has the least dependence upon, or has anything to hope from the minister, makes it his business and his study, as it is his interest, on the one hand, to cry up their patron, magnify his virtues and abilities, and justify his conduct. On the other, to exclaim against his adversaries, blacken their reputation, and play at them every engine, and the same stratagems that are made use of to supplant the minister. Horatio, then every well-polished courtier is fit to be a prime minister, without learning or languages, skill in politics, or any other qualification besides. Cleomenes, no other than what are often and easily met with, It is necessary that he should be a man at least of plain common sense, and not remarkable for any gross frailties or imperfections, and of such there is no scarcity almost in any nation. He ought to be a man of tolerable health and constitution, and one who delights in vanity, that he may relish as well as be able to bear the gaudy crowds that honor his levies, the constant addresses, bows, and cringes of solicitors, and the rest of the homage that is perpetually paid him. The accomplishment he stands most in need of is to be bold and resolute, so as not to be easily shocked or ruffled. If he be thus qualified, has a good memory, and is, moreover, able to attend a multiplicity of business. If not with continual presence of mind, at least seemingly without hurry or perplexity, his capacity can never fail of being extolled to the skies. Horatio, you say nothing of his virtue nor his honesty, There is a vast trust put in a prime minister. If he should be covetous and have no probity nor love for his country, he might make strange havoc with the public treasure. Cleomenes There is no man that has any pride, but he has some value for his reputation, and common prudence is sufficient to hinder a man of very indifferent principles from stealing, where he would be in great danger of being detected, and has no manner of security that he shall not be punished for it. Horatio But great confidence is reposed in him where he cannot be traced, as in the money for secret services, of which, for reasons of state, it may be often improper even to mention, much more to scrutinize into the particulars. And in negotiations with other courts, should he be only swayed by selfishness and private views, without regard to virtue of the public, is it not in his power to betray his country, sell the nation, and do all manner of mischief? Cleomenes, not amongst us where parliaments are every year sitting in foreign affairs nothing of moment can be transacted but what all the world must know and should anything be done or attempted that would be palpably ruinous to the kingdom and in the opinion of natives and foreigners grossly and manifestly clashing with our interest it would raise a general clamour and throw the minister into dangers which no man of the least prudence who intends to stay in his country would ever run into as to the money for secret services, and perhaps other sums, which ministers have the disposal of, and where they have great latitudes, I do not question but they have opportunities of embezzling the nation's treasure. But to do this without being discovered, it must be done sparingly, and with great discretion. The malicious overlookers that envy them their places, and watch all their motions, are a great awe upon them. The animosities between those antagonists and the quarrels between parties are a considerable part of the nation's security. Horatio, but would it not be a greater security to have men of honor, of sense and knowledge, of application and frugality, preferred to public employments? Cleomenes, yes, without doubt. Horatio, what confidence can we have in the justice or integrity of men, that, on the one hand, show themselves on all occasions mercenary and greedy after riches, and on the other, make it evident, by their manner of living, that no wealth or estate could ever suffice to support their expenses or satisfy their desires. Besides, would it not be a great encouragement to virtue and merit, if from the posts of honor and profit all were to be debarred and excluded, that either wanted capacity or were enemies to business? All the selfish, ambitious, vain, and voluptuous. Cleomenes, nobody disputes it with you, and if virtue religion and future happiness were sought after by the generality of mankind with the same solicitude as sensual pleasure politeness and worldly glory are it would certainly be best that none but men of good lives and no ability should have any place in the government whatever but to expect that this should ever happen or to live in hopes of it in a large opulent and flourishing kingdom is to betray great ignorance in human affairs and whoever reckons a general temperance frugality and disinterestedness among the national blessings and at the same time solicits heaven for ease and plenty and the increase of trade seems to me little to understand what he is about the best of all then not being to be had let us look out for the next best and we shall find that of all possible means to secure and perpetuate to nations their establishment and whatever they value there is no better method than with wise laws to guard and entrench their constitution and contrive such forms of administration that the commonweal can receive no great detriment from the want of knowledge or probity of ministers if any of them should prove less able or honest than they could wish them. The public administration must always go forward. It is a ship that can never lie at anchor. The most knowing, the most virtuous and the least self-interested ministers are the best but in the meantime there must be ministers swearing and drunkenness are crying sins among seafaring men and i should think it a very desirable blessing to the nation if it was possible to reform them but all this while we must have sailors and if none were to be admitted on board of any of his majesty's ships that had sworn above a thousand oaths or had been drunk above ten times in their lives i am persuaded that the service would suffer very much by the well-meaning regulation. End of section 46